0: Good morning. My name is Ryan. Um, I'm one of the pastors at New City. I'm glad that you're here, and we're going to continue our study, Witness, this morning. So, if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter four. Acts chapter four. If you need a Bible, somebody will bring you one. Just raise your hand. We'd love to give you a copy of God's Word, and uh, however you get there, get get there in the Scriptures right now. I love this study. I love this study that we've been in, Witness. It's been so fun to look at the birth of the church and then understand our place in all of it. Guys, we're a part of a movement. We're a part of the most important movement that's going on today in the history of our world. It's not a cultural movement. It's a kingdom movement. It's a movement built and centered in a person that we're following both individually and as a unique people, the church, this movement of Jesus of Nazareth. And just like he was then, he's alive and he promises us power even today. I think that word power is kind of interesting because it's something that we all want. Everybody here this morning would love to have more power in your life, right? Uh, we've been rewatching home improvement. And if you remember Tim, the Toolman man, Taylor, yeah, more power. Arr, arr, I can't even do it. Um, but we all want power. And we, we look for it in different places through our positions of authority. Um, I don't know if anyone said this to you or you've said this to anyone, but I maybe have said this in a moment of frustration. I'm the head of this household. That's what I've told people before, trying to get them to listen to me. And they were all kind of like, who are you? What are you, right? And that's what happened to me. I remember when our daughter first discovered, she was about three, that I was the boss of someone else, and she just loved that her daddy was powerful and the boss. She would always say, so dad, you can fire so-and-so now, can't you? And I was like, I, I mean, I guess. And, um, but even when we get into positions of power, whether it's at home and the church and community leadership, you name it, it always feels like it fails on the promises that it delivers us. It gives us, right? It never delivers on those promises uh, to give us lasting life and contentment. We always look for more. And then today, as we jump back into the book of Acts, we're going to look at how the way of Jesus really does promise power. And in doing so, it challenges, it absolutely challenges every notion of what power is in our culture and in our world. And it doesn't line up with what the world says about power. It's the most radically subversive kind that you've ever heard of or you've ever experienced, and it absolutely changes the world. Remember what happened last week? Peter and John are going to the temple for evening prayers. It's three in the afternoon, and as they're walking into the temple, there's all these different gates that you can get into the temple in Jerusalem through. They walk by the gate called Beautiful. Now Luke notes that there's a man who's sitting by the gate who had been lame for 40 years. And people walked by this guy every day for 40 years. He sat there as a part of Jewish life, um, making a living, supporting his family, and people would give to him. It was a pious thing to do. But people walked by and kind of glanced at him, but they never really saw him. Right? They looked at him, but they never saw him. And in this profound exchange, we see a picture of the gospel. Peter and John, oh no. There we go. Peter and John um, see this guy, and, and, and the guy finds life as they interact with him. Gold and silver, Peter says to him, we don't have. But what we do have, we're going to give to you. Stand up. Now, if you're that man, what would you rather have? Would you rather have gold and silver, or would you rather have the ability to walk? The gospel reminds us that we're often misled in the things that we want and that only Jesus can really meet our deepest needs. People, people can give you gold or silver. Jesus can bring you back to life. And this guy comes back to life. He leaps around and then Peter starts to preach a sermon because a crowd gathers around them and that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 4. Let's look at chapter 4 verse 1. It says this, And as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them while they were speaking. They were in the middle of something that was really important. They're preaching to these people and they get interrupted. Don't you hate being interrupted? I mean, just think about these scenarios with me. While I was sleeping, what interrupts you from sleep? Your alarm goes off. Is that not the most annoying sound in the whole world? While you are responding to a text, right, something really important is going on with somebody and they need to hear from you, what happens? The light turns green, right, and you have to start driving and someone honks. While I was on an important conference call, my kids barged into my home office and embarrassed me. Interruptions are hard, especially for those of us who care about what we're doing and we feel like our agenda is important and matters. And the disciples are interrupted, you know, when of all things that they could be doing, they're preaching. It's like, God, don't you see what we're doing here? But they don't respond like that. I love, as we look at the early church and the movement of the early church, how followers of Jesus respond to interruptions. We could just do a study in that. They just roll with it because their lives are not about their own personal agendas. They have given up authorship in their own life they've handed the pen to God and they see themselves as teeny tiny characters in a much larger story that God is telling in this world there's a plot line that's bigger than them and when they encounter opposition it doesn't freak them out they were warned about this it's a promise that they were flat out given by their teacher no big deal we knew this was gonna happen but it's a promise that you and I wish weren't true. It's a promise you and I wish weren't true. Let's look at the story. It says this about the religious leaders in verse two. They were greatly annoyed. I love that phrase. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. They're going to have a good old-fashioned council gathering with Peter and John to interrogate them for what they've been doing, but they can't do it right now because it's too late. But the religious leaders are super annoyed, right? They do their Sadduceical or Pharisaical eye roll at the disciples, and they're like, ugh, these guys again. And Luke captures it so beautifully. It's just raw. I'd encourage you to use this phrase as a direct application of the text this week with people in your life. Husband, greatly annoyed, okay? Daughter, greatly annoyed. Dog, greatly annoyed. Cat, well you're always annoying, okay? Um, But they're greatly annoyed. They throw them in jail and they're gonna get the council together and we see this promise. What's the promise? It's the promise that Jesus talked about and it's a promise that was talked about all throughout the New Testament. Look at what Paul says as he writes to his young apprentice Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter three. He says, you however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And then here's the promise. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus Will be persecuted. It's not a prediction. It's not a could happen to you. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus and find your identity and meaning and purpose in Him, you're going to encounter persecution. And all God's people in America said, Paul, haven't you heard about our country? Come on, this is America. We don't encounter persecution here. I thought everybody who desired to live a godly life in Christ Jesus would be rewarded. I thought that they would be comfortable. I thought that we would be happy. But unfortunately, as a disciple of Jesus, there are only two groups. There are those who know and love him and those who don't. We see this juxtaposition in the story and we know that it's offensive to those who don't. Because when we tell them that Jesus is the way to life and that their rejection of him in choosing a life of sin and death, it's the very thing that put him on a Roman cross, it's, it kind of hurts. But it's not just offensive here. It's been offensive in every culture because every culture, whether it's America, England, China, Thailand, Russia, Somalia, Australia, every culture has what sociologists like Peter Berger call Plausibility structures. Now, I'm just going to beg you to stay with me for a minute. Everybody say plausibility. plausibility. Yeah, it's a great word. These are just the normative way that we think about the world, how we know what we know, where we find ultimate meaning, and then how we put everything together. They're a filter, these structures, they're a filter for what we believe, and they sort of dictate general thinking about what's okay and what's not okay for us to be dogmatic or absolutely sure of. Every culture has these, and they always have, and they always will. So the question that we've got to wrestle with is, am I going to choose the one over the many, or the many over the one? As Christians, we're not choosing ideology. We're not choosing a system. We're not choosing to be more religious. We're choosing to put our trust, to put our hope, to make our life about a person, to get on board with what he says about us, to get on board with what he says about this world, how we know what we know, where we come from, what we're made for, how to find redemption as the pieces of our life are shattered all around us, what this world is for, how we think about work, parenting, everything, right? We're looking to him for everything. So do you choose Jesus, or do you want to have your cake and eat it too? Listen, I like cake. It's one of my favorite things in the world, and I often want to eat it too, but I shouldn't. And the tension that we feel in this text is that there's two groups of people. There are the people who have aligned and chosen, aligned with and chosen to be followers of Jesus, and then there's everybody else. And Luke makes this juxtaposition kind of parenthetically as he's telling this story about what happened as a result of Peter and John's preaching. In verse 5 it says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Wow. That's a lot of people. That's impressive. But we have to remember that the early church, not even called the church yet, not even called Christians yet, just a sect of Judaism following a rabbi who was crucified and they claimed has been raised from the dead, are still a minority within Judaism, much less the Roman world. And being a minority and choosing the one over the many leads to another thing that we encounter in this text. You know what we see? We see that there is a problem with Jesus. There's a problem with Jesus. The problem with Jesus is that Jesus is exclusive, and that's very offensive it always has been and it always will be he was a problem for the jews they prided themselves on being an exclusive people and they were being told by the disciples over and over and over again uh, not only did you miss the messiah that you've been looking for not only did you miss him you murdered him you put him to death the guy that you've been searching for you've been debating the scriptures you've been studying the scriptures you've been looking for this guy all along and guess what you guys killed him That's slightly offensive. And he was causing a stir for them, and they were trying to silence this movement. The stir was going to cause problems not only internally for them, but externally with Rome. So they were trying to deal with the movement of Jesus piously, equitably, in the best way they knew how. But it's a power play the whole way through. We're going to squash out your little movement with our power and our expertise and our prestige, and we're going to look great while we do it. So the next morning they call uh, their council together. Peter and John have been in jail all night. And then in verse 5 it says this, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? Which is a stupid question because they already know. Now, they're just trying to trap the disciples. The council that gathered to interrogate them was made up of the Sanhedrin. It was the Senate and the Supreme Court of Israel. It was the high priest who served as the presiding officer and then 70 other men. The aristocracy, the majority, were Sadducees, and they were sad you see, because they didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. Um, and its lay leaders were Pharisees. So the, most of the experts in the Jewish law were Pharisees. They were also nationalistic. But the Sadducees were in cahoots with the Romans. They were more conservative. They were more rationalistic theologically. And the Pharisees were seen as more liberal because not only did they look to the law of Moses, but they also accepted oral traditions about how you live that out as authoritative. And according to their traditions, they're acting in accord with God's law. Um, One commentator says that the Sanhedrin was acting within its jurisdiction when it convened to examine Peter and John. The Mosaic law specified that whenever someone performed a miracle and used it as the basis for teaching, which is exactly what happened in chapter three, he was to be examined. Now, if the teaching were used to lead men away from the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the nation was responsible to stone him. That's from Deuteronomy 13. On the other hand, if his message was doctrinally sound, the miracle worker was to be accepted as coming with a message from God. So this is a showdown between the strong and the disciples who, according to the world's standards, are very, very This is exactly what we see in the Gospels that happened with Jesus over and over and over. They constantly tried to make power plays that would end his ministry on earth, and when those power plays continued to blow up in their faces, they made the biggest move they knew how. They conspired with Rome, and they had him put to death, which ultimately ended up backfiring in the biggest way possible, and here they were. They're at it again. This is all they, this is Old behavior. The exclusivity of Jesus is offensive to them because it challenges not only what they believe, but the very power that they hold as they believe it. It was offensive in Rome, too. Rome is polytheistic and pluralistic. Now, those are big words, but they worshipped many gods, and all of those gods were equally valid for them to worship. Every major city has its own god and its own goddess. And every Roman citizen also, on top of that, Worship Caesar as one of the gods. And then you have these common fishermen making this bold claim. It's only Jesus. He's Lord and King. No one else should be worshipped. Only him. Check this out. This is so great. Verse 8, Acts chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed, done to a crippled man. By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we're gonna put Nazareth in there just so you know where he came from, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, and then he uses the Old Testament against them, From Psalm 118, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love that. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Everything. Peter and John, they don't respond with a fight. They don't get their fists up and, and feel cornered and feel like they've got to strike back. They respond with faith. They're not afraid, they're empowered. Fear leads us to either fight or to run away in flight, but faith grounds us courageously to point to real power. Courage is something I think a lot of us need more of in our life of faith. Courage. Not to speak against things, but to speak for things that are true. So the pattern of the church is not to have power at the top. I know that contradicts what's been going on for the last hundred years within evangelical culture. But the pattern of the church is not to have power or to seek power at the top, but to point to power as we are at the bottom. We're our strongest when our backs are against the wall, not when we're standing tall. And the entire time, what do we lead with? As we lead with courageous faith, what does it look like? How does it express itself? Well, Paul said it to the Galatians the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through what? Through love. Remember how we talked just a few minutes ago about pluralism in Rome? You know, right now in our world in the West, we look more like Rome than we have for more than 1600 years or so. For centuries, Uh, Christianity, ever since it became the religion of the state, was sort of at the top. As followers of Jesus, we sort of had the reigning plausibility structure when it came to religious beliefs. He was kind of the starting point. Now, we we really don't have time to get into it all uh, today, and, and it is really messy, but this led the church in a number of different directions in church history, and it caused a lot of problems. Some of the things that it caused were really good and some of the things that it caused were very bad. But we're not there now. Let's not pretend like we live there. We live in a pluralistic society. That just means that when we make statements of belief, there are no absolutes. Faith is subjective. And no one can claim to know the truth exclusively. So Hinduism is a valid path to the truth as is Buddhism, as is secular humanism, and just keep rolling with it. Uh, Author Leslie Newbigin wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, and in it he says this, it's gonna come up on the screens. He says, in a pluralist society such as ours, any confident statement of ultimate belief, any claim to announce the truth about God and his purpose for the world, is liable to be dismissed, maybe this has happened to you, as ignorant, arrogant, dogmatic. We have no reason to be frightened of this accusation. It itself rests on assumptions which which are open to radical criticisms, but which are not criticized because why? Because right now they are a part of the reigning plausibility structures. In other words, none of us can claim to have a hold on the truth, on all of the truth. You may have pieces of the truth, but you can't know the whole truth. Now there's a common, normal illustration that pluralists pluralists will use that takes kind of different expressions, but it's called the uh, analogy of the blind man and the elephant. So let's just kind of walk through kind of what that means and what that looks like right now. Let's pretend. Okay, in our mind's eye, that there's a gigantic elephant on this stage right now. Wouldn't that be so cool if you came? You talk about attractional church. We got an elephant on the stage this week, okay? Uh, so we got a big elephant on the stage, and into the room walk three people who are blind. And we direct them to the front, and we just say, You're gonna walk forward, you're gonna, you're gonna feel something. We want you to step up, and then we just want you to grab onto the warm thing that you kind of feel there. And as they come, maybe one guy grabs the trunk, and as he's holding the trunk, he says, Oh, It's flexible and it's it's warm and oh look at that it just puffed in my face and now I'm all wet (laughs) isn't that weird I don't know if he'd do that but uh, he would laugh maybe because he would be surprised by it another one comes and lays on the massive animal's abdomen and he puts his arms out and he he finds a place to lay and he just feels himself moving back and forth as it inhales and exhales and he says oh it's calm and it's relaxing. And it puts me to sleep, and he describes what he experiences. And it's big, and it's kind of firm, but also kind of pudgy and soft. And then the another one comes, and he, he grabs its leg. And he puts his arms around it, and he, and he describes what he feels as he feels its leg. This is what pluralists say our relationship with the truth is like. All of us can describe pieces of the truth, but no one has an angle on all of the truth. And then Jesus comes to Rome. He comes to Judaism and he comes to every fallen people who have ever shared a common story about who they are, where they come from and what they value and he challenges their underlying assumptions about reality and he's threatening. He doesn't allow for people to have different perspectives of the truth his disciples weren't getting this idea Peter and John out of a vacuum. They heard this out of the mouth of their teacher. He made statements like this. I am the way, I am the truth, And I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He makes statements about his identity. Remember your father Abraham? Before Abraham was born, I am. And he uses the name Yahweh that God gave to Moses and revealed to Moses about himself in the Old Testament. He says this in some of his teachings. If you want to enter, you've got to enter through the narrow gate. Take the narrow path, and then he calls himself the gate for the sheep in this illustration of himself being the good shepherd. We as his people believe that Jesus is the only savior of the world because he did. There's nothing wrong with making an exclusive claim if you believe that it's true. There's nothing wrong with making a claim of exclusivity if you believe that it's true. Let's just go back to this illustration really quickly And think about it, if we understand it correctly, the illustration in and of itself is a statement of exclusivity. It's being told from the story of someone who's a pluralist. They see the whole picture, they see the whole elephant, and they're making an exclusive truth claim about what they believe to be the nature of reality. So the illustration, just like pluralism itself, is self-defeating. So here's the great news about the gospel. The Christian message is the most adaptable message culturally that the world has ever known. If we took our overarching view of the world in the West right now, what I've been calling pluralism, we took it to animistic cultures in Africa or animistic cultures in in South America where they had folk religion, and we just tried to impose it on them, we would destroy their culture. We would tell them they were wrong and stupid And the gospel doesn't do that. The gospel comes to every culture and doesn't destroy it. It redeems it. It helps people understand what their true story of origin is, and and it helps them put all the pieces together, but it doesn't demean their culture in the process. See, right now today, all over the world, there are people in China who have already gathered or are probably still gathering in house churches to worship. There are people in Africa who are worshiping for hours and hours and hours, and to us, Man, if Ryan goes 40 minutes or more, I'm going to fall asleep. But there, they're going to go for four hours. There are all these different expressions of the way of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't destroy or blow up people's cultural context. Now, we we have common beliefs about the gospel that are core to Orthodox Christians throughout time and history. But the gospel enhances culture. It doesn't demean it. And the problem the world has with Jesus that leads to the persecution of his people, it's never going to go away. It's never going to stop. So what do we do? do? Do we undo the promises of Jesus and Paul? Let's just focus instead on our personal connection to Jesus because that seems to be the key for these disciples as we look at the story of the early church. I don't know about you, but in my life, I I feel like in our world, I have to be able to prove Jesus in an intellectual sense to other people. And if I can't do that, then I probably can't present him to other people. But all we're responsible for is presenting Jesus as humbly as we can to other people. And guess who does the work? Who's one of the main characters in the book of Acts? His name, we've talked about him many times, but his name is the Holy Spirit. He can change people's lives. Do you believe that? He's not stressed out about the person at your office who's difficult. He's not stressed out about your family member who you're like, yeah, they're never going to turn. He's not afraid when you encounter opposition about what to say or how to say it or how to apply what you say to somebody else. He's fine. You can rely on him. You really can trust him. He's God, just as much as Jesus and just as much as the Father. The disciples were standing up to the most educated, powerful people, and they were just telling them, hey, here's what we know. And it was effective because of their personal connection with him. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them <laughs> not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Guys, you're not allowed, okay? You're done. We know, we know that you think this is something, but stop it. Stop it. Uh, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I've been reading this book, The Insanity of God, and in it, author Nick Ripkin talks about his own work in bringing the gospel to Somalia, and then he shares stories. He goes and studies the persecuted church all over the world. He shares stories from his work interacting with all these different church leaders in different cultures and contexts. And he describes this time with church leaders of a large house church movement in the country of China. This is unbelievable. Just listen to this. He writes, one of the local pastors raised his hands to ask a question. Do the people in other countries also know about Jesus? Or is he only known in China? I then told the group that believers in other parts of the world also knew about them, the Chinese believers in house churches. I told them that believers in many parts of the world prayed for them and their churches. Wait, wait, people cried out. They could hardly believe what I was saying. One man responded this way. Do you mean people in your country know we believe in Jesus do you mean that they know some of us are suffering for our faith do you mean that they haven't forgotten us and that they pray for us one of the younger women in the group asked since Jesus is known in other countries are the believers there persecuted like we are I told them about the experience of believers in two very oppressive Islamic countries The entire gathering of house church leaders in the farmyard became strangely still. Just minutes before, they had been clapping and shouting and asking questions. Now they were completely silent and still. They sat there expressionless. The author tries to liven the group up, but he can't do it, and they all go to bed. And then a few paragraphs later, he describes what happens the next morning. At 6 the next morning, I was awakened by screaming and shouting outside in the compound. My first thought was that the security police had come. As my eyes adjusted to the daylight, I saw that there were no security police swarming into the compound. What I saw were those Chinese house church leaders and evangelists scattered around the farmyard, either lying or sitting on the ground. They were crying, screaming, and they were yelling hysterically. Many of them were pulling out their hair or clutching at their clothes. And I spotted my friend Dave across the way and I rushed over to him. I demanded to know, what in the world is going on? He told me to be quiet and to listen. And before I could protest again, he took me by the arm and began to walk me among these people who were crying and screaming. Because I was now silent, I actually began to hear and recognize the names of the two Muslim countries I had told them about the night before. The names of those two countries were being repeated again and again and again in passionate and anguished prayer. When David stopped and turned to look at me, there were tears streaming down his face. He said this, they were so moved by what you shared last night about believers who were truly persecuted that they have vowed before God that they will get up an hour earlier every morning to pray for those Muslim background believers that you told them about until Jesus is known throughout their countries. Three responses. And I'm just gonna let the Spirit do his work. We're just gonna sit for 30 seconds to a minute and pray. I mean, I know it's kind of a weird context, but maybe there's someone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus and you wanna just start following him and trusting him with your life. And you want to make his story your story. Um, Maybe some of us need to return to God in some significant ways or even some little ways in our own lives. And then I just had this thought, I don't do this a lot, but I had this thought as I was driving in this morning and I think it was the Holy Spirit. Um, I think there are people in this room, maybe students, maybe people who have been following Jesus for a long time and God's calling you to something. Something. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's ministry. I don't know if it's missions. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just something in our own community that God's calling you to stand up and to bring the gospel somewhere in your world. But I think God's calling some people to some stuff today too. So let's respond. The Spirit will do the work. I'm not even gonna pray. I'm just gonna move my stuff. Daniel will come up and lead us in our last song. And then we'll respond to God.